Moroni and Helaman achieved victory in their wars, both military and spiritual, Moroni through his unwavering commitment to defend freedom, and Helaman through his mutual love for the people of Ammon. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. This week's lesson is Alma 53 through 63, preserved by his marvelous power. It's the story of how Moroni and Helaman are finally able to defeat the Lamanites in spite of all of the setbacks that they have suffered up to this point. And before I get started on this week's chapters, I wanted to bring up something that I forgot to mention last week. If you turn to Alma chapter 45, verse 1, You'll notice that after one of the battles, the major battles, in which the Nephites were victorious, I'll read you this verse. Behold, now it came to pass that the people of Nephi were exceedingly rejoiced, because the Lord had again delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. Therefore they gave thanks unto the Lord their God, yea, and they did fast much, and pray much, and they did worship God with exceedingly great joy. Something that occurred to me years ago about this verse is that the Nephites weren't asking for anything at this point, and yet it says that they did fast much and pray much. And this this happened when I was about 30 years of age. I was reading this verse and I thought, I have never taken the opportunity simply to fast because I'm grateful. I always have something that I'm asking the Lord to do for me. And there's absolutely, I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all except that I had never once done it the other way. And so I took the opportunity when I was 30 to just fast and pray. Every time I thought about it, I would kneel down and pray about all of the things I was grateful for. And for an entire day, I didn't pray about anything except what I was grateful for. And it was so interesting because at the beginning, I was expressing gratitude for things of a more temporal nature or things of a more temporary nature. And by the end of the 24-hour period that I fasted, I found that I was thanking the Lord for the eternal blessings of the plan of salvation. I was thanking Him for the plan itself. I was thanking Him for my body. I was thanking Him for the creation of the earth. And I was truly grateful for those things. So I guess the point I wanted to make, I've, I've actually been looking forward to this verse coming up for several weeks now. And so the fact that I forgot it means that I had to go back because I think it's worthwhile to remember gratitude and even remember gratitude with fasting and just to, i just wanted to point out that gratitude begets gratitude expressing gratitude can actually create gratitude sometimes we thank god and we don't really feel it it's still good to say that we're grateful but it is through expressing gratitude that we can begin to have it enter into our hearts so that's that message that i forgot last time alma chapter 45 verse 1 If you have a question you'd like to ask and you'd like to have me respond to on the air, any question that requires a scriptural response, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com and I will answer it as part of the program. If you remember at the end of last week's lesson, it was chapter 52, and Teancum had just sneaked into the Lamanites' camp and killed their king, Malachiah, and then the next day the Nephites won a tremendous victory over them. And so they're without a, the Lamanites are sort of routed. They're without a king. They haven't been driven out of all the lands that they took possession of. So over the course of these, this 10-year span that these war chapters take us through, 
The Lamanites have a pretty huge incursion into Nephite lands and take over a significant portion of them. And the Nephites spend the rest of the time just trying to regain what they lost. And we're picking this week's lesson up at somewhere around the halfway point of this war. And so what Moroni is still trying to do, even though they've just had a victory, is he's still trying to expel the Lamanites so that they can regain the, the lands of their possession. And one of the problems Moroni is having right here at the beginning of chapter 53 is that he's a victim of his own success. And it, this happens to both Helaman and Moroni. They've, they've had so many victories over the Lamanites that they don't know what to do with their prisoners. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the Nephites is that they're merciful to those they capture, whereas the Lamanites will often just kill those they capture, and Helaman even describes this in one of his letters to Moroni. The Nephites, on the other hand, they will show mercy even when the Lamanites are totally defenseless and they can easily kill them, even when they suspect that these very Lamanites they'll have to fight again. If the Lamanites say that they won't come back to battle against them, if they yield up their weapons of war, the Nephites invariably show mercy. We'll talk a little bit about that. So part of what we learn in this week's lesson is the great genius of Moroni as a military commander. As I mentioned last week, he's not just a great tactician where he can plan on the day of battle in order to take a numerically inferior force and win time after time. In fact, I don't know that there are too many accounts, if any, in the Book of Mormon where Moroni lost a battle, even though he was always outnumbered. But in addition to being a genius at tactics, he's also a gifted strategist. And so he knows what to do with supply lines. He knows what to do with prisoners. He knows what to do with fortifications. Moroni has the entire theory of military command pretty much figured out. And I don't know whether he was taught by someone. I don't know if they had the equivalent of a military academy, but it seems like he probably did a lot of this figuring out on his own or through, through inspiration from God. And there are a lot of details about Moroni's particular genius as a military commander, and unfortunately, that's I, I consider that to be a little bit outside of the scope of this podcast, so we won't spend too much time on it, but I, I will say this. I believe that these things are included not just for a historical reason, so it is, it is very useful historically to know. Uh, you'll, you'll remember all throughout the Book of Mormon, from the time of Nephi, Nephi started saying this, and then you've heard it repeated throughout several scriptures, several passages in the Book of Mormon, which is, a greater account of the wars and contentions of my people are held on the larger plates of Nephi. And so we know that there are a lot of missing accounts of the wars and contentions of the people of Nephi. But here in the latter half of the Book of Alma, it feels like we have the full account of the wars and contentions. And so this gives us a little bit of an indication of the things that we're missing elsewhere. Secondly, I believe that there are parallels. So, as I mentioned last time, the, the people of Nephi in these chapters, they are living through the decades, running up to the coming of Jesus Christ, where the people of Christ, the people of the church, have to oppose evil in those decades that precede Christ's coming. So in addition to the historical significance of reading these chapters and knowing what warfare was like for the Nephites and Lamanites, we also have a spiritual significance. As the manual points out, the fact that the Nephites are fighting against evil and that Moroni has fortifications, for example, against aggression, we can take spiritual instruction from that and say, I should wear spiritual armor, I should have fortifications, etc. And I think we can get even more specific. I think we can go a level or two deeper than that and say, that Helaman drew out the forces of the Lamanites from their strongholds by appearing weak 
and then hiding the bulk of his forces. What is my spiritual equivalent? I think there are those lessons for us to learn. I won't go into what any of them might be, but I think for uh, because I believe that they're probably very individual. So in addition to a historical significance, there's a spiritual significance. And then as I just mentioned, there's a prophetic significance where we're living through similar times nowadays. They were 60 years before the coming of Christ or thereabouts. And who knows where we are in relation to the coming of Christ, but let's say that we're in the decades leading up to the coming of Christ or maybe even sooner. Then this book becomes more and more profitable for us to read. So that it has a prophetic significance in addition to its historical and spiritual significance. And apart from that, I probably won't mention the tactics used by Moroni all that much, even though they are brilliant. He's a brilliant tactician, as I mentioned. And so I'll just leave it to you. If you want to understand how brilliant he was and how brilliant Helaman was, then you can read these chapters yourselves. But We're going to spend today's time talking about how they did what they did spiritually. So here in chapter 53, we have the account of the people of Ammon, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They're about to break the oath that they once made because they see the Nephites. They're suffering, sacrificing, and dying to preserve the freedom of all the people. And the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are being protected by them, and they can hardly stand this. Now remember, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's once... submitted themselves to be killed in battle. They went to battle without any weapons at all. Their oath, their covenant that they made with God meant so much to them that they were more than willing to die. In fact, they, they happily died in order to preserve their covenant. So this tells you how strongly they feel about the Nephites. They love the Nephites more than their own lives. For their own lives, they were not willing to lay down this covenant, but to save the Nephites, they are. And it is only Helaman and his brethren who talk them out of it. So Helaman says, I, I think that you will put your souls in danger. I will not allow this. Let's find some other way. As Helaman later reports uh, in a later chapter to Moroni, he feels like God will not reward the Nephites any less in battle for not having the anti-Nephi-Lehi's with them. In fact, I kind of look at it almost like a Sabbath day where God blesses the business person with success who works six days and takes off one day more than he blesses the person who works all seven. It just seems to me to be a similar sort of feeling that Helaman has. These people are consecrated to the Lord. We can't allow them to fight. And there too we find something significant worth noticing because the Nephites are in a battle for their very survival. If they should lose to the Lamanites, their entire way of life will end. They will lose all of their freedom they know exactly what the Lamanites will do because they've felt it before. They, that, this is why they keep telling each other to remember the bondage, remember the captivity of their ancestors, because they know exactly what it's like when the Lamanites are in control. They lose the freedom to worship the way they want to. They lose their economic freedom. They have experienced bondage, and it's horrible. And that was before all the dissenters from the Nephites. Who knows what it will be like now? So Helaman, looking down the barrel of utter destruction of his people, still is willing to let the anti-Nephi-Lehi's keep their covenant. He's willing to convince them that they need to keep their covenant. So in reciprocation for the love that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's have toward the Nephites, Helaman feels a love towards the covenant that they have made that is greater than his love for the survival of his own people. So they both have this hugely selfless love for each other, which is why 
When the time comes for him to command an army of the children of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they call him father and he calls them his sons. It's because they have established this bond of love. Now, it's obvious that Helaman's warriors are miraculously preserved by the power of God, but my question is, and we'll talk more about it, is, is it possible there's more going on that entitled them to that sort of protection? So we'll talk more about that. But that we get a little bit of exposure to what the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are willing to do when their children come forward and they make a covenant. In verse 17, we have this account of the children of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's entering into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the Nephites, not even for, even for their own liberty, but for, to fight for the liberty of the Nephites, to protect the land unto the laying down of their lives. Even they covenanted that they never would give up their liberty, but they would fight in all cases to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondage. Now, remember the covenant that that Moroni made. He wrote it on the standard of liberty. It was in memory of our God and our religion, our freedom and our peace, our wives and our children. Those were the six things that he covenanted to protect. And the implication was that as long as he doesn't have freedom, he'll never stop fighting. And that is the key factor that we have to learn today about Moroni, is that he's always willing to fight. Even when everyone else wants to give up, Moroni will keep fighting. And that's the very same covenant that, the, that these stripling warriors are now going to make. One thing I want to mention about that word stripling, often you see these, the 2,000 warriors of Helaman depicted as mighty men, huge muscle-bound men walking in rank after rank, and they look very intimidating. Uh, physically intimidating. And I think the truth is probably different than that. Remember, the word stripling, I think most people, the reason for this, most people get the word stripling confused with the word strapping. Now, a strapping man is somebody who is physically strong. And there are descriptions of men that are like this. They don't use the word strapping. But Amalekiah, for example, he's described as a, as a strong and mighty man. Nehor was described that way. And these are striplings. And what that means is kind of like a teenager, So they're not quite to their full growth. And I believe the way they should be depicted artistically, for example, is as sort of skinnier, smaller men. And therefore, they would be intimidated by a lot of the warriors that the Lamanites would bring to the battlefield. They would look small alongside, when placed alongside the battle-hardened armies of the rest of the Nephites. And that is very important to remember. So when they're described as fighting with great strength, there is no mistaking that what Helaman is saying is they had miraculous strength given unto them because arm for arm, they just simply would not have been able to overpower the Lamanites or take the place of a Nephite army of similar numbers. After that covenant in verse 17, we can turn to chapter 54. And here is where we begin reading the letters from Moroni to Amaron and back. Amaron wants to exchange prisoners. One of the problems that Amaron keeps having is that the Nephites are capturing all of his soldiers. And he keeps trying to come up with ways. We'll find out in another chapter that he writes to Helaman. Helaman's on the west and commanding the the forces there, the forces of the Nephites there. And Moroni is on the east. And he and Lehi and Teancum are the generals there. And Amaron keeps trying to write to both of them saying, why don't we trade for prisoners? Helaman, why don't we trade one of the cities for prisoners? Moroni, why don't we trade soldier for soldier? So Moroni says, first of all, Moroni does not handle this situation diplomatically at all. He pulls no punches, making Amaron aware of how strongly he feels about his course of action in bringing this war of aggression to the Nephites. 
And then he says, I'm not going to trade with you unless you give me an entire family of Nephites for each Lamanite prisoner. So it's interesting because Amaron writes back and says, okay, I agree to your terms. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 55, we have the account of Moroni saying, Amaron would not grant mine epistle. And I've always been confused by that. And now I realized at the beginning of Moroni's letter, he says, you should stop this war of aggression. And if you don't stop, then we will come upon you and kill you. We will, ha- we will show no mercy, even though he will actually show mercy. He threatens him with the lack of mercy. And he says, you will be destroyed if you continue this war against us. And when Moroni later says, he would not grant unto me mine epistle, what he means is he wouldn't stop his war of aggression because I wrote to him and asked him to do it. He wouldn't grant it unto me. He doesn't mean he wouldn't agree to my terms about the prisoners because Amaron did agree to those terms. And then Moroni thought the better of it anyway. He thought strength in numbers is the primary advantage of the Lamanites. And even if we do get an equivalent number of soldiers back, we simply cannot afford to add to the strength of the Lamanites. So let's get our prisoners back some other way. And he and Helaman both, they come up with a way to gain what Amaron had on offer without exchanging prisoners. Something interesting that we learn from Amaron's letter is that his moral compass is completely broken. So the thing we learn from Moroni's letter is he's not very diplomatic. He calls a spade a spade. And when somebody is evil, he basically tells them, you're an evil man and we'll kill you if we can. And you should stop doing evil and repent. And, and in Amaron's reply, the attitude that he takes, he's dreamed up this scheme by which the Nephites have wronged him just by being alive and free. He, he says, your ancestor, Nephi, he deprived my ancestor, Laman, of the righteous rule that he had the, the birthright to over the family of Lehi. And because he deprived him of that rule, the Lamanites today are still victims of this ancient grievance. Now remember, Laman's will with respect to Nephi was that Nephi did not get to worship the way he wanted to, and they were going to murder him. So when Nephi left, he was simply preserving his own life. In leaving, what he was saying was, in essence, I don't have to let you kill me. So this grievance of the Lamanites toward the Nephites is based on a lie. The lie is that Laman has the right to kill Nephi if he wants to, and Nephi should just submit to it. Now, that's a really stupid idea, but to compound it further, Amaron has chosen to be a Lamanite. So he identifies himself as a Lamanite, but he also identifies himself as a proud Zoramite. And so what he says is that he has more than one grievance against the Nephites, because as a Lamanite, he has had the rule of all the Nephites taken away. And as a Zoramite, his ancient forefather was kidnapped by Nephi. So he's victimized because he's a Zoramite, and he's victimized because he's a Lamanite, which he chose to become, and none of it makes any sense. And because of this, after receiving his letter, Moroni is described as having a knowledge that Amaron knows that he's lying. He knows he is arguing a fraud. And that's because, as I just discussed, Amaron's arguments are circular. He says, if you'll lay down your weapons, then we can be done with this war tomorrow. You just have to give the righteous rule back to those who deserve it. But Amaron chose to become a Lamanite. He was once a Nephite. And it's obvious to anyone listening that he doesn't care about the righteous rule. What he, all he wants is dominance and power. And 
Moroni knows what the Lamanites do with dominance and power. They refuse to let the Nephites worship as they choose. And Moroni has made a covenant. His covenant is the standard of liberty, as we discussed. If he can't worship as he chooses, he will fight to the death. Now, in chapter 55, we have an interesting passage. In verse 4, it says, uh, Moroni comes up with a plan, and his plan is to get the, the Nephite prisoners back without having to exchange. And in verse 4, there's, the interesting passage is that a search was made for a descendant of Laman among the forces of the Nephites. And one of the points that we made back when we talked about race several lessons ago was that if the Nephites and Lamanites had a huge and unmistakable racial difference, there would have been no need for this search. If they wanted to find a Lamanite and the Lamanites looked different enough that they could be easily distinguished, then they, everyone would have known, yes, we have a Lamanite in our army. Instead, they had to make a search. They probably had to ask around, are any of you descended from Laman? So I'm beginning to be more and more all the time of the opinion that the Nephites and Lamanites didn't have any significant racial difference between them. And as for those passages that appear to describe a racial difference, that difference can be explained spiritually as well. For more information on this, you should Google the name Ethan Sprout and also uh, the name Marvin Perkins and Race and the Priesthood, so you can find out more about that if you care to. What I want to say about chapter 55 is that after Moroni makes use of this descendant of Laman, and they go in and they get the Lamanite guards drunk, and then they have the ability to ambush them, and they, are, they free the prisoners, it describes the fact that Moroni, even though he has the capability right then of falling upon the Lamanite guards and killing them, it is not his desire to shed blood. And I just want to point out how remarkable this is. The Geneva Convention, you may have heard of it, it's a multinational agreement whereby member nations agree that if they're ever in warfare against each other, that they will treat the prisoners humanely according to a code of ethics. And it's a code of ethics that are mutually agreed upon. And if they're in a war with, with non-member nations, they're not bound by that same code of ethics. So it's interesting that throughout human history, the atrocities that are committed during warfare are almost indescribable. And it's only in the last century or so that we've become advanced enough as a civilization to say, even when we're in warfare, we don't want to commit this kind of atrocity. We want to spare ourselves the worst of human nature by agreeing beforehand that we're not going to sink that low. And centuries before, millennia before this, Moroni unilaterally. So he is actually on a level above those people who are signatories, those nations that are signatories to the Geneva Convention and other similar accords, because he acts unilaterally. The Lamanites, we have evidence in Helaman's letter and elsewhere that the Lamanites, Lamanites put their prisoners to death, or they take them back to the land of Nephi, and they plan never to release them. So the Lamanites are uh, committing these same atrocities, and Moroni unilaterally decides we're going to show mercy to our prisoners, even though they don't show mercy to us. Not only that, but he seems to have innovated this level of ethical behavior all by himself. It would have been permissible under the law of Moses. It would have been, heck, it's pure common sense that if somebody is your enemy, you want to kill as many of them as you can if you're in a war together. And yet he felt like mercy was more appropriate for him as a follower of Christ and as a Nephite that he should treat Lamanites differently than they treated the Nephites. And, of course, he was right. 
My point is, so often we judge people of the past according to our modern standards, and we fail to recognize, we look back at Moroni and we see him showing mercy to prisoners, and we fail to recognize what a trailblazer he was, not just in tactics and strategy of military campaigns, but also in the ethics of military campaigns. So the next three chapters, 56, 57, and 58, are Helaman's letter to Moroni, explaining his successes that he has once he starts commanding this band of 2,000 stripling warriors. After their first battle, by the way, they're joined by 60 more. So they're called often called the 2,000 stri- stripling warriors, but they eventually became 2,060. The interesting thing, the, the unmistakably exceptional thing, is that none of them die. So their first battle is a pitched battle where they're running from this huge band of Lamanites chasing them because they have drawn them out of their stronghold. And of course, this was a ruse to leave the Lamanites, this larger force of Lamanites, vulnerable to ambush. And then they were ambushed from their rear, but the, it was a larger force of Lamanites that were ambushed. And without the 2,000 warriors fighting against them, the force of Nephites that were doing the ambushing would have been overcome. So remember, these are not strapping warriors. These are stripling warriors. And when they turn around, Helaman asks them, look, we don't know why the Lamanites stopped following us. We only know that they're not here right now. If, if it so be that they're fighting against the Nephites right now, they may really need us. And this is the moment when they show their courage. They've never fought before. All they, I'm, I'm sure they have trained, but all they've done is think about warfare. They don't have any actual experience with it. And they unan- unanimously say, yes, let's go back and engage in this battle. And as Helaman describes again and again, it was the ferocity. It was the viciousness almost. I don't want to say viciousness, but they were vigorous fighters. They punished their enemies. Anyone who came against them, these stripling warriors, were fearsome opponents. And one more point I want to make is this wasn't some battle where death could take you randomly, as you might think of a gun battle. So if there are two armies separated by a battlefield and they're shooting at each other, it would be possible for a smaller force to overcome a larger force if they got lucky enough that their bullets found their targets. But when it's hand-to-hand combat, the idea that an entire army would have no casualties is simply impossible, especially when they're physically smaller than their opponents. Some of them, even if they win, some of them would have to die, and yet none of them do. So these, this small band of young men turn around, give battle, prove to be the decisive factor in the battle, and then none of them are killed. This is clearly a miracle. So I want to talk about the miracle. When we look at the miracle, we think God blessed them because they had faith in what their mother said about uh, the existence of God and that Jesus Christ would come one day and we have made a covenant. So let's talk instead about why God would bless the stripling warriors and not the rest of the Nephites. What was so special about them? One point that I've already made is that they love the Nephites more than they love their own lives. Number two, is that Helaman loves their, their parents' covenant more than he loves the survival of the Nephites. And I think the third thing I would say is that God really loved the covenant that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's made. He had to be pleased in heaven when they made a covenant and they stuck with it no matter what, even though it meant the death of many of them. And this is his way of blessing them and showing them that even your children will be prospered because you proved faithful to me. I, I firmly believe that that is why none of these men could be killed. None of these young men could be killed. This was God's way of saying, what your parents did, 
was so important to me that I will protect them. I will protect their children because they mean so much to me. I will show them that my approval towards those who are faithful to me is worth gaining. And the rest of the Nephite forces, though they were prospered in battle, they didn't have this history where their parents had made such a a difficult covenant and renounced so much evil and become so good on the tail of it. And that is the reason, I believe, for the miraculous preservation of the stripling warriors. And in chapter 57, when they're joined by 60 more reinforcements, we find out again they are the decisive factor in a victory over the Lamanites when all of them are wounded, showing that all of them, none of them shrank from the battle. They were all willing to put themselves in harm's way, and yet none of them, not a single one, was killed. And again, miraculous preservation. And we learn now a final factor in their in these miracles that seem to attend them, and that is their swift, exact obedience. So I imagine that Helaman was similarly blessed with insight into the tactics of a battle, as was Moroni. And so when he saw a need for forces to uh, shore up a weakness in one part of the battle, or this force to move over here, and he gave an order, that order was designed to protect the army. And the fact that they immediately, it, sa- it seems like they didn't question it, and they didn't f- let fear get in their way of obedience. They just did it. And so all of these things put together, I bet you they're all related. The fact that they had such mutual love with their commander, the fact that their parents had been so faithful over something so difficult, and the fact that they were exactly obedient seems to be the secret to their miraculous preservation. So there's a lesson in there for all of us, the strongest of which is probably that God does not forget those that are faithful to him. And by the end of chapter 58, because of the miraculous preservation and the power in battle of his forces, Helaman is able to declare complete victory over the Western Front, which is his stewardship. Now it falls to Moroni in the remaining chapters to win on the east. The problem is nobody's getting any reinforcements. So one of the weaknesses that Helaman's talking about in his letter is we just haven't received enough supplies, we haven't received enough men. We need more of both, and they promised us more, and it hasn't come. Moroni is upset. He sends off a letter to Pahoran. Now, you remember Nephiha, the the second chief judge, the one who took over from Alma. He had a son. He served for many, many years, and then he had a son who took over when he died. So Nephiha's son is Pahoran, and this is very a very righteous family. Uh, Nephiha was actually Alma's first choice to give the records to, to be the chronicler of his people after he, Alma, was gone, and Nephiha turned down the honor, presumably so that he could better give his attention to governing. And we have reason to suppose, therefore, that Pahoran would also be a righteous man. But then the city of Nephiha is actually conquered, and Moroni is disappointed because he had presumed that they would have received supplies and reinforcements a long time before then. And because they've been conquered, he knows that they never got it. So this brings up his fierce anger. Now, if you look back over the history of the last several years, what has happened is that the Nephites were strong. He had all of the cities on the border fortified and protected. They were unassailable. And then because of this insurrection of kingmen, his focus was distracted from the border and the Nephites, uh, the Lam- I'm sorry, the Lamanites gained a foothold and then they gained more than a foothold and then they gained great advantage over a lot of the lands and cities to great cause of loss of life. So Moroni is so upset because 
He just feels like, look, we have the strength, we have the means, we have the know-how to keep ourselves safe if we will just be united. So he writes this letter expressing all of his frustration, and he says, look, if, you're, if you think that God will protect you because you're in the middle of the country surrounded by our forces, then think again, because the reckoning's already on its way. And if the Lamanites don't do it, I'm going to do it. One of my favorite lines in this chapter, and this is chapter 60, is when Moroni says, I am Moroni, your chief captain. I seek not for power, but to pull it down. Now, if you didn't know better, you would think that sounds like an anarchist, but the truth is, he's basically saying, government exists to protect freedom. If we read one verse earlier in verse 35, if you do not this, meaning if you don't send forces, uh, supplies and reinforcements, I will come unto you speedily. For behold, God will not suffer that we should perish with hunger. Therefore, he will give unto us of your food, even if it must be, by the sword. Now see that ye fulfill the word of God. What Moroni is saying here is that withholding these things, withholding supplies and reinforcements, is equivalent to doing violence to your own armies. Moroni knows that in order for evil to be defeated, it must be actively opposed. If we, if we back up further and read verse 24, he says, And now, except ye do repent of that which ye have done, and begin to be up and doing, and send forth food and men unto us, and also unto Helaman, Behold, it will be expedient that we contend no more with the Lamanites until we have first cleansed our inward vessel. And in my opinion, that phrase, begin to be up and doing, would be a great title also for this lesson. Because he's saying, you have a job that is so important that I will kill you if you don't do it. Now remember, this comes from Moroni, who has already shown himself to be a great innovator in the, in the realm of military ethics. He is justified in making this threat, the survival of their people, the very, their very survival is on the line. Now, Pahoran receives this letter and sends back a reply. And obviously, if you know the story, you know that Pahoran wasn't at fault. Uh, he had, he, they'd, there'd been another insurrection of kingmen, and they had kicked out all of the people loyal to Pahoran out of Zarahemla. They had to flee, if you remember, going back again to Alma chapter 5 and 7. Alma had a difficult time in Zarahemla, and then he had a pleasurable time preaching the gospel to those saints in Gideon. And Gideon has been a refuge of the saints ever since. And so that's where Pahoran flees, and that's where all, all the people loyal to the established order start to gather from that point on. But I want to point out something interesting. I've heard a few talks in conference and elsewhere, people saying, now, Pahoran had been wrongly accused by Moroni, and he could have gotten angry, but instead he's humble. And I actually have a, a slightly different take. I think that Moroni had every right to be angry with Pahoran because Pahoran had failed to keep his city, his society united. He had failed to send the supplies and reinforcements. And failing both of those things, he had also failed to keep Moroni informed of what was going on. His first letter, before he even got to Gideon, should have been to Moroni saying, Moroni, we have been deposed. We're in big trouble. We can't send any more reinforcements. You guys are on your own. Help if you can. But he didn't do that. He had to wait until, uh, until Nephi ha was conquered and until Helaman was suffering for want of supplies and forces. So I do think it's interesting. I do think it's good that he didn't get angry, but I don't think he had a right to be angry. Pahoran had a fair amount of explaining to do, and I think justifiably so. Uh, one thing he could have done, one course he could have chosen to take, was to get defensive. 
Now, this is something I want to talk a little bit about because uh, people, when they get defensive, it means that they are upset that the person talking to them doesn't see the whole story. So Pahoran could have rightfully said to Moroni, look, Moroni, I didn't do this. There's an insurrection of kingmen in Zarahemla, and I just didn't have the ability to send out any reinforcements. I, I didn't have any food. I didn't have access to the supplies. And defensiveness would be going one step further. So go take your complaint somewhere else, Moroni. And if you want to get angry at someone, then get angry at Pacas, who's the leader of the kingmen. So that would be an example of what defensiveness would sound like. And I guess the point I want to make about being defensive, even though Pahorn didn't do this, I'm not saying he did. I'm saying had he done it, he would have been factually correct. It was true that it wasn't his fault that he wasn't able to send the, the men and supplies that he needed to. However, it's also true that it would have been utterly inappropriate for him to have that attitude. His attitude rightfully was one of utter humility and asking Moroni what he could do to fix the problem. And that is, that is the only attitude that was appropriate under the circumstances. So the point I wanted to make about this is learning not to be defensive is a skill. It is something that can absolutely be mastered and improved upon. And if you, I, I, I learned a lot about this years ago from the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. In that book, Stephen Covey wrote that when the, the most effective form of listening is listening to understand. And what most people do is they listen to defend or they listen to counter or they're just waiting for the other person to finish talking. And the true kind of listening comes when you really want to understand. And if, and if you're listening in that way, there's no room for defensiveness. It's impossible to be defensive afterwards because you haven't been preparing your defenses while you've been listening. You've actually been listening to understand the point of view of the person who's talking to you. If you suspect that you struggle with defensiveness, I invite you to look into that. I invite you to foster that skill, the skill of listening without defensiveness. It is something that is possible to change and to master. One more thing I want to point out in chapter 61 is verse 19. Uh, Pohoran says this in his response to Moroni. He says, Moroni, I do joy in receiving your epistle, for I was somewhat worried concerning what we should do, whether it should be just in us, to go against our brethren. So let's recap a little bit what's been happening over the last little while in Zarahemla. The kingmen have overcome the will of the people. The, the voice of the people came against them, and then they said, well, we're going to unseat the government by force, and we're going to kill those who disagree with us. Pahoran managed to escape, but he didn't have the force of will to oppose with violence. And it wasn't until Moroni wrote to him in such fierce anger saying, look, our entire people are going to be destroyed. If you don't send us men and food, we will come kill you. Only then did Pahoran wake up and say, oh my gosh, we have the right to defend our freedom. Our freedom is actually something real. When these kingmen took our freedom away, it wasn't just an inconvenience to us. They were actually doing us genuine harm, harm that is worthy of being opposed with violence. Now, that, this teaches us something fascinating about Moroni, and that is that Moroni is the one person who would never stop. He had made a covenant to, under the title of liberty, saying, I'm going to defend my God and my religion. I'm going to defend my freedom and my peace. I'm going to defend my wife and my children. And if anybody has these things threatened among the Nephites, I will fight. To, until either I'm dead or they have those freedoms again. 
I will never stop. And Pahoran was willing to stop. He was saying, well, as long as they're not troubling us right now, I guess we'll let them have the city of Zarahemla. And that's exactly what Satan wanted him to do. And Moroni said, no, we're never going to stop fighting. Our freedom is worth fighting for. It is something valuable, and God wants us to have it. And so it doesn't take him long. He marches back to Zarahemla. On the way, he takes the title of liberty, and people flock to his cause. And this shows that Pahoran could have been doing a lot more work to raise men if he had sent the title of liberty. There's a bunch of cities in between where Moroni was and Zarahemla where he could have been raising forces. So by the time Moroni arrives in Zarahemla, he's got thousands of more men. And they go and they easily defeat the king men. They put them all to death, summarily execute them. I shouldn't say summarily. They quickly go through the trial and the execution because they just... They're in a, again, they're in a war of survival, and they don't have time to be able, deal with people who aren't willing to fight. So it becomes a matter of life or death. Are you willing to fight for the cause of freedom with the, of the Nephites, or are you not? And if not, we can no longer allow you to remain here in Zarahemla and threaten us from behind our battle lines. It's impossible. You have become a threat to freedom. You must die. And the reason I point all of this out is not to say that we are in such a situation today that those who oppose the cause of freedom must die. Nothing, nothing of the sort. What I'm saying is that Moroni knew and he showed through his actions, number one, that he was a very ethical person, and number two, that freedom was a real thing and that, that something that was definitely worth fighting for, that we should never allow our freedom to be taken away without a fight. And today I think so many good people are like Pahoran, and I include myself in this, we're like Pahoran where we think, you know, it's okay that my freedom has been abridged. I'm willing to let it go because I don't know if it's just for me to defend my freedom. I guess I'll just let that particular part of my freedom go. And then we let a little bit more of our freedom go. And Moroni's attitude would be today as it was then, no, unless you begin to be up and doing, I'm going to come there and give you a swat on your behind until you realize that freedom is actually worth fighting for. So now Moroni's forces are victorious. He then takes his forces, and he goes and fights the Lamanites again, and he's utterly victorious. They reach their, they take their borders and extend them to the original point that the Lamanites incurred upon. And for this reason, I think that this is why Mormon named his son Moroni, is because Moroni fought against impossible odds, and he never gave up until he won. He was victorious against an existential threat to the people in Church of God, but because he was unwilling to compromise and never would stop fighting in the cause of freedom to live and freedom to worship, then he showed to what extent God would be willing to be with a leader like that. And that's what he wanted for his son. And in my opinion, actually, the biggest reflection we have of Moroni is in Mormon, not Moroni, uh, the son of Mormon, but in Mormon himself. He also was a commander at a young age, and he also was a brilliant military tactician and strategist, and he could have been victorious if he'd had enough righteous Nephites on his side, if he'd had anything like the proportion of Nephites that were righteous as uh, Captain Moroni did. Then Mormon, too, would have been victorious, but it just so happened that that was what was prophesied. That was the path that was appointed unto Mormon to see his people dwindle in unbelief. And I imagine that he named his son Moroni before he read that fateful prophecy of Alma that the people of Nephi would be utterly destroyed 400 years after the coming of Christ. 
Just prior to this final victory, by the way, Teancum again steals into the camp of the Lamanites by night and kills their king the day before the decisive battle. And I just love Teancum for that reason. And one thing I want to say about Amalekiah and Amaron, they held the Lamanites in thrall with fear and with this philosophy where they were victims of an ancient grievance. And because of these two elements, because the Lamanites simply couldn't shake off the fear of Amaron or of Amalekiah, and because they couldn't shake off this idea that they were entitled to something because of what somebody else's ancestors had done to their ancestors, they could not leave this terrible destructive war that was hurting them far more than it was even hurting the Nephites. And only when Amaron was dead could they finally leave and go back to their lands and realize, if we'll live in peace, we can have everything the Nephites have. Many of the Lamanites, by the way, did did realize this. Only after being defeated in battle, taken prisoner, then they, they knew, they knew that the Nephites were better than they were because they said, let us live among you. Let us go join the people of Ammon. And the people of Ammon will teach us how to work and how to prosper and how to worship and how to basically be good human beings. And they knew that the Nephites would take them in. So deep down, the forces of Satan, the, these evil forces, they knew that they could be happier if they lost. And that, in my opinion, is the reason for the miraculous preservation of the Nephites, is because they were fighting for their freedoms, and the Lamanites knew they were fighting in an evil cause. And as bloodthirsty as they got deep down, they never forgot that. But I want to, rem- I want to remind all of us that this is how much Satan hates you. When Amaron sent his letter to Moroni, saying, if you will just yield up your weapons of war, this, this war can be over tomorrow, and we will once again have the rule over you, and we will rule over you in the same way that Laman was going to rule over Nephi, which is put a stop to you worshiping how you want, and then we will kill you. The real point of all of these war chapters is that there can simply be no negotiating. There can be no ceasefire, and ultimately, there can be no peace between the forces of God and Satan, because Satan will never stop. He wants to take away our freedom, and like Moroni, we should always be up and doing to defend it. It is a real thing that is worth preserving forever, and if we will share the covenant of Moroni and of the 2060 stripling warriors to always fight for God and religion, for freedom and peace, for our wives and our children, our families, then, we, then it will be preserved by the marvelous power of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.